Let's open our Bibles to Judges chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verse 7 through 11. The first judge, Othniel, the story of Caleb's son-in-law this morning. Um, if, uh, if you're visiting, or if you just need the reminder, I'll, uh, I'll let you know, uh, or call to your attention page 5, I think it is, of your worship guide. There's the sermon outline and some reflection questions. So make use of that, um, and I'm going to invite you to stand now as I read this short passage for us. Again, Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 7, and I'll read through verse 11. Give this your full attention. This is the living and active word of God. Verse 7, Judges 3, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Reshathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Reshathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Reshathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Reshathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Y'all can have a seat. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's extremely fitting and absolutely necessary that we would admit that we can't do anything unless you invade our lives and author and perfect fruitful good things. Uh, we, we can't even study your word unless you give us eyes to see it for what it's really saying and ears that are receptive to what your, your voice is expressing and ultimately hearts that resonate and receive, like good soil, the living and active word of God. And so we ask that you would do that. Uh, we know what, it, what it's like to, to have a, a deep, unquenchable desire, to have something in our, in our life, on our minds, and in our hearts that that's, it's compulsive, it's an obsession. And we're praying that, that you would make uh, your word and your will to, to, to be that in our lives, that we, we would... We would have this unquenchable urge to hear from our Father uh, and to, to receive what you say and to, to apply it, to live it out in our everyday lives. And we ask that you would do that good work now in the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus, we, we pray. Amen. So there are things in life, uh, good things, that we forget to do. We, we neglect a variety of really good, healthy things. For example, you're probably aware that you should floss regularly, but you forget or you neglect the, the duties of flossing your teeth on a regular basis. Um, perhaps you know this, you're supposed to get up every morning and maybe not the, the most immediate first thing, but, but early on you're supposed to make your bed. You, you realize this, right? Your, your, your life uh, is just going to be better. You're going to have more, more purpose and drive and, and good ambition in life if you just get up and you, you accomplish this one simple task of making your bed. 
but sometimes we, we neglect that. We forget to do that. Um, here's a really basic one. You're supposed to drink water. You know this? Uh, it's important to hydrate, um, but, but you can go all day and then maybe you get a headache. You know, it's 5, 6 p.m. at night and you think, that's what I forgot to do. I forgot to drink water. I need to remember to do that. Uh, another really important one is you're supposed to listen. Listening is a really big deal in life. Uh, so often we, ju we just go through life uh, just not listening, right? People are telling us things, important things, and we're more concerned with how we're going to respond or just we're preoccupied, we're distracted, and we're not, we're not really listening. Um, we're also supposed to spend time, substantive time, with, with our families, um, and, and sometimes it's really easy to neglect that because we're, we're pulled away by work or we're distracted by our phones. We can physically be in the same room as our families, but not really with our families. You've, you've been in that scenario, I'm sure. Um, or maybe if you're anything like I was when I was a teenager, it just doesn't feel cool to be with your family. I mean, you would just much rather go be with your, your friends, right? Go having all these fun adventures and entertaining experiences with your friends and hanging out with mom and dad well, that's not cool, you know, or when grandma and grandpa come to town, you think, well, you know, I'll put in a token appearance, but I'm not going to hang around with them uh, because I'm trying to be cool. I got to go out and live my life and have adventures. Well, in a lot of ways, that's what's going on here in Judges 3. The people of God are forgetting God. We're, we're told that very plainly. We're told that they neglect this all important relationship with God. And it begs the question, why do the people of Israel forget God? And, and we need to wrestle with this question. Personally, why do we neglect God? I mean, God made us. That's a big deal. Uh, God upholds us. He sustains you. In anything in life that is valuable to you, that matters to you, that feels like it has purpose and meaning, it's all authored by God. So, so why do we forget God? Look at verse 7. It says, The people of Israel forgot God and they served the Baals and Asheroth, these, these pagan false gods. Uh, Baal and Asheroth were, were trendy back in the, the days of the judges, right? There's, there's always some kind of big, impressive thing that, that we as human beings fixate on and, and put our attention on, and, and we're liable to put more focus on something that feels impressive and entertaining to us more than the only true and living God. And for the people of Israel back in the day of, the, of Judges, uh, it's Baal and Asherah. Th this is what's popular. This is what feels relevant to them. These, these gods of the Canaanites, the gods of fertility, the gods of prosperity, the gods who send rain. These are all false narratives. But, but this is what the people of, of these days put their attention on. This is what they were enchanted with. And by comparison, Yahweh... Uh, well, Yahweh, he doesn't feel so trendy. He doesn't feel as relevant. And the people avoid Yahweh. They ignore Yahweh. They neglect him. And, and I think we can kind of boil down why they do this for, for three basic reasons. Three reasons why we tend to ignore and avoid God. Number one, his communication style is not exactly what we prefer. Uh, the content of what he's communicating is not our favorite. And honestly, the fact that he really, really cares, that's kind of bothersome to us. It's unsettling and it can be very disruptive that God has this very intense parental bridegroom level care for us. 
So his communication style, his content, and the fact that he really does care. We're going to go through these, these three reasons why we tend to steer clear of God, why we want to forget him sometimes and neglect him. Communication style. What's God's communication style? Well, all throughout scripture, God really prefers to communicate through these guys called prophets and through what the prophets write down and record for us to read. So prophets and books. That's how God prefers to communicate his will, his desires, his plans for our lives. Now, that begs the question, how did people feel about the prophets? The true prophets. There were false prophets, and they were very popular. They were very trendy, and everybody loved to hear from the false prophets. Their itching ears loved to receive information from false prophets. But what about the true prophets of Yahweh? Well, every single one of them was extremely unpopular. Nobody wanted to hear from the prophets. They were a persecuted minority. What they said, it was the truth, and it was, it was spoken in love, but people did not have appetites for what the true prophets said. They did not find what the true prophets of God were communicating to be palatable. So you can use a, a really a obvious big name example like Moses. Moses is one of the first big prominent prophets of God. And how did people feel about Moses? Even Moses' own family members, how did they feel about him? Well, they grumbled against them. They complained against them. They, they oftentimes tried to reject him as their leader and, and steer back toward Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. Because Moses was not, he wasn't trendy. He, was, he didn't seem as relevant. He didn't seem like the guy for the job, according to the Israelites. And they would, they would long, as crazy as this sounds, they would lust and long after the idea of going back to their slave days in Egypt under the oppression and affliction of Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh, he, he kind of looked like a celebrity, right? Pharaoh postured himself as a god. And he looked dynamic and dramatic and entertaining. And he had this band of magicians and enchanters who could do wild, crazy stuff. And the people of God were attracted to that. And when it came to Moses, they were not so, they were not so attracted to him. And then Moses went on to write a bunch of books. Maybe you've heard of these books. He wrote this book called Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Riveting, riveting literature, right? Well, people didn't really like to read Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. You know, maybe you feel the same way. You think, you know, you know see, this is my problem with God. It's his communication style. These weird outdated, unpopular people like the prophets, and then they write down these, these archaic, weird things in the Bible, and I just don't have an appetite for that. I'm not a big reader in general, and I definitely don't find Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy all that compelling or relevant. See, that's God's communication style. And actually, it's really a big deal because when God himself became a human being, when he took on flesh and dwelt amongst us, he, he spent a lot of time personally reading and embracing the word of God. And then he would always preface his teachings with, it's written. Haven't you read what the prophets have said, what Moses said? And it just doesn't seem as entertaining, as, as dramatic and dynamic as we perhaps want it to be. So that's the communication style. What about the content? If you do read the Bible, what are you going to read? Well, let's just use those, those books I mentioned, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You could even say the book of Exodus, which definitely has some dynamic stories and, and some really dramatic scenes. But the whole latter half of the book of Exodus is tedious tabernacle construction details. Really, really boring stuff. 
the book of Numbers, well, as you guessed, uh, you probably could surmise, it's got a lot of numbers. It's a lot of census details. Uh, you know, there are stories baked in, but it's a lot of laws. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, it's a lot of laws. And, and all of these laws are really orbiting around one central theme, which is you need to love God. This is how you're going to experience a, a satisfying, robust life to the fullest, is by living by faith in this God you, you can't see. He's not like Pharaoh. He's not this celebrity, dynamic, dramatic figure. He's, he's an invisible, immortal, unchangeable God. And, and you should love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And love all these image bearers he's put in your life. That's, that's the primary emphasis of the law of God. And again, people like Pharaoh, Baal, and Asheroth, they seem more entertaining. I mean, we can at least see them. We can visibly, tangibly interact with them. And here's a real big selling point. Baal and Asheroth, they don't have any ethical code, really. I mean, you have to offer them sacrifices so, so that you can experience the blessings of fertility. If you, if you want a, a, a good crop or you want prosperity, you have to offer them certain things. But they don't really care how you live. They have no moral absolutes that they're going to hold you to. Ultimately, Baal, Ashuroth, they would say, just do whatever you want. Do whatever is right in your own eyes. I mean, give us our offerings, but, but we're not going to get too close to you. It, it's a very transactional arrangement. It's superstition. It's surfacy. It's, it's not going to be intimate. It's not going to be relationally invasive. It's not going to disrupt your life. And this is kind of the big hang up with God, with Yahweh. He really insists on having a robust relationship. He cares about you because he says, I'm your father. I'm your father and I want to be in your life as a loving parent. Which means God's going to say, have you done your homework yet? He's going to hound you about doing things that you don't want to do. Have you done your chores yet? I told you to fold the laundry. I told you to clean your room. Are you going to obey me? Because these, these good things, these chores, these commands... It's not about you meriting any favor with God. It's about you being in the family. It's about you experiencing this familial bond and this familial life to the fullest that God wants to have with you. And we feel those things that come with God's fatherly familial love and perhaps we feel them as stifling, overwhelming and overbearing. You know, God's hounding me about, about my friends, about my relationships, and I just don't want to talk to him about that. I would rather have a transactional, surfacy relationship with the gods. I don't want God pressing in and caring so much about my life. It's, it's kind of annoying. I don't want God telling me, you, you know, you need to love your brothers and sisters. You need to be kind to them. And if, and if you've sinned against them, you need to say you're sorry. You know, I just don't want God all up in my business like that. That's what the Israelites are feeling. That's why they prefer... Baal and Yeshuroth. And back in the days of Moses, that's even why they want to go back to slavery. Because they don't want the intense love of this Yahweh God. Because it's kind of disruptive. So God's people react to, to Yahweh, kind of like the son in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. You know the story of the father with the, with the two sons, the, the, the younger son and the older son? And, and in that story of Luke 15, something really similar happens in that story that we see happening here. We see uh, this desire in God's people to, to flee the presence of the Father. And the Father gives them over to that very unhealthy, uh, very evil desire. 
It's kind of a mystery, but that's what God tells us in the Bible. Uh, if you go read that story in Luke 15, it's going to tell you there was a man who had two sons, and the youngest son says to his dad, Father, give me my share of the family inheritance. Now, let's pause. Perhaps you've reflected on this before, but let's, let's renew our focus on this story. It's a very well-known story. But when the son says, Dad, give me my share of the inheritance, we need to pause and, and be really clear about the fact that the inheritance is not available yet because dad's still alive, right? So dad has a life insurance policy. You know when the kid gets the money? When dad dies. The, the dad's not dead yet, right? And, and all, of the, all of the stuff that, that would be coming to the son, like the house, the cars, all that stuff that you would, you would sell at, a, at an estate auction or something, that has to get liquidated. So this is a huge request. And then on top of that, it's a deeply painful request, not just because of all the pragmatic logistical things that the father would have to do to accommodate the request, but essentially the son saying, I don't want anything to do with you. I am dying to get away from you because your rules are stifling to me. Your, your rules feel overbearing to me. Your version of care, father, feels oppressive to me. It's not what I want. And your communication style is outdated and irrelevant to me. And so in that story, as shocking as this may sound to you, the father gives the kid what he wants. It says the father divides the property. And not many days later, the youngest son gathers up all of this stuff and he leaves to go off and do life on his own terms. And that's what's going on here. That's what's going on when it says God sold his people into the hand of Kushan Reshathayim. This is what the people want. They want to go after the Baals and Asheroth. They, they are saying, we lust. We are passionate for, for this way of life. And a, a big dimension of God's wrath is God saying, okay, I'll let, you, I'll let you go try that out. I'll give you over to what you're demanding. In Romans 1, it says, God looked at his people and their depravity and their wickedness and the, they had all these unhealthy, evil lusts in their hearts and God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. And this is a mystery. We're never gonna fully comprehend this, but a huge reason why God gives us over is because he insists on full, authentic love. You know, God could have made us robots Right? He could have made us the, the types of creatures who, who, couldn't, who couldn't choose to run away from him. But he says, no, I want a full, vulnerable, real, rich relationship with you. And he says this all throughout scripture. I, I want you to love me with all your heart. I don't want it to be an automated, duty-oriented love. I want it to be a heartfelt, all your soul, all your might, all your strength kind of love. And we see that God is affected by their decision to go after these other gods the way a husband would be affected if his wife was faithless. This is what God says all throughout scripture. It's, it's not just that you're sinning, you're committing crimes. It's that it's like adultery. It's, it's breaking my heart. And so God is appropriately angry. He's righteously angry. That's what it says in this passage. He's angry. When I thought about God's righteous anger as I was reflecting on this passage earlier this week, I thought about Forrest Gump. Go with me on this. Forrest Gump, you know, he has a love interest, Jenna, and he knows that he loves her the best. He knows he loves her the best. He may not be a smart man, but he knows. 
what love is. And he knows that he loves her really, really, really well. And it's an intense kind of love. And you see episodes in that film where he is angry because Jenna is running after false lovers who are oppressive. They will enslave her. They don't actually care about her. And he is righteously upset about that. And that's how God feels. And yet, just like Forrest Gump, he's not going to He's not going to hold on to her and make her stay. He's going to say, I'm going to let you run off and try this life on your terms business. And that's what God's doing. God gives his people over to the lusts of their hearts because he is a jealous lover. And ultimately, God's grand design, his big purpose is that we would be brought to the end of ourselves as we try to live in accordance with what's right in our own eyes. As as we try to live out this plan of life on our terms, God says, my my great hope, my ultimate plan is that you would come to the end of yourself. Because our relationship with God is, you could say, very principally predicated on feeling our need of him. This This is one of the most beautiful, most vital dimensions of our relationship with God. The fitness that God requires is not that we would perform for him and impress him, It's simply that we would feel the beauty of our need for him. This is not bad news. The fact that you're small and frail and weak, God says that's not anything to be ashamed of. That is a beautiful thing that you must desperately depend on me. Actually, that's how God describes paradise. You you realize this? In paradise, in a sinless environment, the Garden of Eden, God says paradise is described as you being naked and not ashamed, totally needy. And you realize all the fitness that God requires is that you would feel your need of him. And that's what God wants for us. That's what his jealous love is orchestrating. We need God like a fish needs water, right? It's not a bad thing for a fish to stay in the water. And and God's people, chronically throughout the stories in scripture, they get this evil notion in their heads and in their hearts that freedom is life on their terms, which would be like a fish being free from water, (laughs) If I could just get away from Yahweh, I'd be free. You'd be about as free as a fish out of water. You would suffocate. You would die. It would be torment and torture. And there's actually something really good about you realizing that so that you, in a very delighted way, would would come back and depend on God desperately because that's what you were designed to do. There is no life. There is no life outside of this relationship with God. And so God's doing this in a pretty intense way. Look at verse 8. It says, God sold them into the hand of Cushan Reshathaim for eight years. Uh, Reshathaim, Cushan just means Cushan, that's his name. Reshathaim is this play on words, and, and it means double wickedness. Cushan of double wickedness. And it, and it really is a lot like that story in Luke 15. Because if you're familiar with that story, you know this, this kid, he, he tries to do life on his terms and he runs out of money. And so he goes to get a job with, with this pig farmer, this guy running a, a pig business. And for any Jewish audience reading that story, they would hear this working in the pig farm uh, story and they would think, this is wicked. This is despicable. This is a very uh, dehumanizing, uh, uh, wretched place to work. But then it's double wickedness because in the story it says the young man is so desperate that he actually, he actually envies the pigs. He wishes that he could eat the pig food. He is so hungry and no one will give him anything to eat that he's even longing to eat the, the, pigs, the pig's food. And that's what the people of God are experiencing here. This, this double intense 
wickedness of Kushan Reshathaim, and, and they're experiencing it for eight years. Really pause and imagine what this feels like. Uh, not too long ago, we went through this thing called the coronavirus. Y'all remember that? Remember that? It wasn't that long ago. Um, and, and like a few months in, you were like, you know, I'm sure this thing will sort of run its course and we'll be back to normal in no time. And then like a few more months went by and you're like, what? Well, it feels like we're still kind of in this. And then a year went by and you're like, it's been a year. <laughs> and then like another year went by and you could even say, what are we, 2023 now? And it's like, things are still kind of weird. It hasn't really reset and gotten back to what we would, would have thought of or imagined as normal. And the people of God are in some intense Intense oppression for eight years. So it's no surprise you get to verse 9 and you see the people of God cry out. They are feeling the consequence of their bad decision to go off and do life with Baal and Asheroth. And they're reaping some horrible fruit, double wickedness. And so they cry out to God. Now here's the most riveting and, and scandalous part of this whole story. It's the question, what should God do when he gets the call from his people? You know, they've run off. They've chased other lovers. And now they're coming back to God. They're crying out, God help us. So, so this is a really huge question. And you really have to, to immerse yourself in the intensity of this question. What should God do? when his people cry out to him. Really think about this for a moment. Imagine uh, you're, you're God's neighbor, you know, like a home improvement, uh, Mr. Mr. Wilson, you know, they talk over the fence. And, and so God comes to you, like Tim Allen, and, he, and you're, you're Wilson, and he's like, hey man, I got this situation. I've got this group of people, and I love them, I treasure them, but they keep going after these other gods, and you know, for eight years now they've been dealing with that oppression because that's what they asked for. What should I do though? They're calling me, they want my help. You might say, well, well, God, tell me a little bit about the history of the relationship. And he tells you, you know, well, yeah, this is kind of a pattern. Uh, it's a toxic relationship. It's, it's a pretty abusive relationship, I, I would say. You know, I've been faithful to them. I mean, it would be very appropriate for God to say, I've been perfectly faithful to them. I created them. I sustained them. I provide for them. I'm, I'm overwhelmingly merciful and kind and loving to them. Uh, and they've been pretty, to be generous to put it this way, kind of forgetful of me. They, they don't seem grateful. And again, it's a pattern. It's not the first time they've done this. It's kind of their chronic reoccurring thing that they do. Uh, and they're crying out to me now. So what should I do? And, and you might say, well, do they seem repentant? Like, are they, are they truly remorseful or are they just dealing with the negative consequences of their bad choices? And God would say, well, you know, I don't, I'm not sure they're really repentant. Um, they're definitely suffering and, and they, they feel uh, really wretched. But there's no evidence that they're really, like, rigorously repenting. I mean, we see episodes in Scripture of real repentance, like sackcloth, ashes, fasting. Uh, we don't get any of that information here. So, so they might be repentant, but it's sort of a question mark on that. I think if you thought of yourself as a good friend to God, you would say, listen, you need to get out of this relationship. You know, because it's, you're not getting anything out of this. It's toxic. They're taking advantage of you. It's abusive. What kind of self-respecting God would put himself in such a vulnerable position again and again and again and again? I mean, I don't want to be negative or mean, but just the wisest, most logical thing you can do is just get out of this relationship. You know, don't respond anymore because these people are horrible. But that's not what we see. 
says in verse 9, God responds to the cries of his people. Verse 9, it says God saves them. God provides a deliverer for them. And, and this, this is the big question. Why? Why does he do this? And uh, probably the, the best immediate answer is we don't know. Well, I mean, we know he says, I do it because I love you. But I mean, if we're looking for a logical, sensible answer to why does he love us? Why does he keep helping us when we've been so flagrantly, chronically disobedient and ungrateful? It's a mystery. It's actually a scandalous mystery. And what's fascinating is when you read scripture, this, this mystery, this scandal has caused a cosmic war. Did you know this? There are angels right now, unseen to us, but this is true. This is a reality. Right now, there are elect angels, angels who agree with God. They don't, they don't fully comprehend what he's about because they're not, they're not omniscient, right? They're not fully God. They're, they're, they're servants of God. But they long to look in the, into the mystery and the scandal of God's choice to save sinners. And then there are fallen angels, like former archangels, who, who make it their, their life's work to accuse us. Because they're, they're looking at this relationship between God and sinners, and they're saying, we have to, on principle, resist and oppose this relationship. And we have to make it our highest ambition to, to accuse God's people because they are absolutely wretched and evil. And it's so, it's so riveting because God would say, you, you're actually right. They, they, they are guilty, but my mercy triumphs over judgment. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to send my son, the eternal son of God, and I'm going to have him substitute and take the wrath of God for them so that I could have them as my treasured possession, not just with me in heaven, but as my treasured wife, enveloping them into the oneness of the Trinity for all eternity. That's what God says. And our role, the role of the Israelites, the role for those of us sitting here this morning, our role when we, when we press into this, this revelation that God shows us all throughout the Bible, this, this, this staggering, mysterious saga of his mercy, our role is to receive the mercy. Not because it makes sense. Obviously not because we merit God's favor or else it wouldn't be mercy. But just to, like children, like sheep, to just come hungry for God's mercy. And our role is to participate in it. So as we're going to come to this table here in a couple of minutes, you need to ask this question. In fact, you need to wrestle with this question. How should I receive the, the bread and the wine, the body and the blood of the Son of God who came to serve as a substitute for me, to take the full force of God's wrath for me? Because that's what my sin deserves. But God wants to pour out his wrath on Jesus so that I can be saved and enveloped into the eternal love of God. How should you receive this meal? Well, first and foremost, you cannot come to this sacrament with a humdrum, automated attitude. God didn't make you a robot, right? You're not supposed to just say, well, this is the duty of a Christian. To show up at church, to read some of the Bible, and to take the Lord's Supper. It, it, it has to be more dynamic to you than that. It has to be more scandalous and, and dramatic to you. To partake of this meal, in one sense, you have to be shocked. 
you have to be shocked that God would do this. That God would first pursue people who are so chronically faithless. And then secondly, that he would provide for you in such a fervent and full way that God himself would take on flesh and put himself in such a vulnerable, frail position and lay down his life of his own accord so that you could be the recipient of God's mercy. That has to be so riveting to you. And if you're just sort of yawning your way through that gospel saga, th this is probably not the meal for you. You probably need to wrestle through it a little bit more and, and be a little bit more shocked, more riveted by what God has done. Partaking of this meal then leads to participating. So, so the other part of examining yourself and reflecting on what this meal means and, and asking yourself, should I take it? It's asking yourself, do I want the, the fruit that comes with this meal? You know, when you put something in your body, you, you do well to think about what will this do to me, <laughs> right? Like Bailey Wagner apparently shouldn't go eat cookout at midnight, uh, you know, the, the chili cheese dog or whatever it was, because uh, there's going to be some gastrointestinal issues if you put that in your body. So, so what happens if you put this in your body? What happens? Well, we see what happens. Look at Othniel. Last thing about this passage and as we approach this table, Othniel. Well, everything we know about Othniel, we, we, we've seen him earlier in the book of Judges. He is an impressive guy. He is a faithful, obedient follower of Yahweh. He has an impressive track record. And it's not just him. He comes from good stock. He has a family that, that is impressive, right? He's the son-in-law of Caleb. I mean, Caleb is one of the most faithful characters in all of Scripture, even when everybody else is faithless. Guys like Caleb are faithful. They're trusting of God. They're obedient. And, and Othniel and his family have this legacy of being responsive to God and obedient and faithful. And so it would be really, really easy for Othniel to say, well, you know, we figured it out. M my family and I, we're faithful. We're obedient to God. And these Israelites, they are so chronically faithless you know, I don't think I can in good conscience participate in God's plan to respond to their cries. It would be really easy for Othniel to say, you know, I'm not going to participate in God's plan to forgive and show mercy and grace to his people. Because my family's figured out a way to be, to be obedient. And if they can't figure it out, if they're going to chronically relapse into sin, I'm not going to participate. That's what the fallen angels do. They say, look, I I'm not going to go along with God and participate in his agenda of mercy. But that's not what we see Othniel doing. Othniel, he understands that he needs mercy. Any of his ability to, to participate in God's program of mercy, it's predicated on his personal need for mercy. Right? We never pay back for his, we never pay God back for his grace and mercy. We always eternally borrow more of God's grace. To, to have these fruitful lives like we see here in the character of Othniel. Feasting on mercy is actually what fuels your participation in God's agenda of mercy. So another way to put this is self-righteousness would disqualify you from this meal. Again, think about that story in Luke 15. What disqualifies the older brother at the end of the story? Well, he disqualifies himself, right? Because the dad says, you should come to the party. You're the big brother. And, you're, and you're, you're, your youngest brother's back. He's alive. We thought he was dead. And you know what the older brother should do? 
He should run to that party and start hanging streamers and blowing up balloons and like getting the food ready. He should be so eager to participate in the lavish grace that the father wants to show to the younger brother. But that's not what he does. He stands outside and he's grumpy and he says, well, listen, this kid doesn't deserve this. And if that's how you feel, you shouldn't partake of this meal. Self-righteousness blocks you. It disqualifies you from receiving such a mercy-oriented meal. Only if you need God's mercy in a, in a dramatic and lavish way. Only if that's what you need, then, then that is what would bring you to this meal. To relish God's mysterious and scandalous grace and to revel in the fact that you get to participate in it. You get to steward it in the lives of the people around you. So if you're hungry for that, you are wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly invited to come. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come to this meal, we would heed the warning um, to, to die to our selfishness and self-righteousness. And, and that, we would, that we would hear you when you tell us that, that if we were to partake of this meal without being deeply, deeply aware of our need, we would be eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. We would be failing to discern what this meal is really about. But we ask that you would author an appetite in us that really never loses sight of this, this wonderful, staggering, and scandalous fact that you, uh, that you truly love us in this unquenchable, never-ending, never-giving-up kind of way. And, that, and that, that love, that the story, the saga of that mercy that's what would change us. That's what would uh, renew us day by day. That's what would shape the way we uh, shape how we think and the way we make decisions. Um, we pray that it would be our joy to follow the shepherd who gave his life for his sheep and, and that our lives um, would look like that, that, that our mind would be conformed uh, to, that, to that approach, to have that mentality and nourish us uh, in that way now. We pray this in your name. Amen.